This is Blankenship on Trial, West Virginia Public Broadcasting's podcast about former Massey CEO Don Blankenship and the Upper Big Branch Mine Disaster. I'm Scott Finn, Executive Director at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. We'll look at the evidence, the arguments, and why it matters. This is Blankenship on Trial. I'm Scott Finn. We're on week three of the trial of Dom Blankenship. Prosecutors are trying to connect the dots between the former Massey Energy CEO and the Upper Big Branch disaster. We'll discuss the latest developments with West Virginia Public Broadcasting reporter Ashton Marr. Hey, Ashton. Hi, Scott. And Charleston attorney Mike Hissom. Hey, Hey, Mike. Hey, Scott. Uh, Mike is the former assistant U.S. attorney who worked on the initial investigation into Massey Energy after Upper Big Branch, but he was not involved in the investigation into Blankenship himself. So we're hearing more this week from the miners who worked at the Upper Big Branch mine. One testimony was extremely emotional. It came from a miner called Stanley Goose Stewart. Ashton, what was that about? Goose was a continuous mine operator, so he actually ran the piece of equipment that mines the coal. Um, And he worked on the evening shift. On April 5th, the day that the Upper Big Branch mine exploded, Goose was 300 feet underground on his way to the long wall section, which is where the accident actually occurred. That he did not include in his testimony, though. That's something that we know from previous testimony that he gave before Congress. But the testimony he gave in this trial, it really had jurors on the edge of their seats. He kept their interest the entire time, and it's because he's such a character. He was not afraid to talk about what it was like underground. He talked about cheating on dust sampling, about skipping steps in the mining process where they actually cleaned and rock dusted the mine face, all of these things that happen in the process to keep the mine safe. He said some pretty unforgettable things like describing the sense of fear, intimidation, and propaganda at the mine. He said the men had a, quote, code of silence, that they didn't talk about the poor conditions underground. On cross-examination, they tried to depict him as opportunistic. He did speeches after the mine disaster. He testified before Congress. But he broke down on the stand and said he wanted the truth to be out there, that those men deserved for the truth to be heard. And that's why he did all that speaking. So the defense is trying to say, well, you can't really trust him because he just wanted publicity after the disaster. And he comes back and says, I was just trying to get the truth out to more people. How did the jury react to him? The jury, like I said, they were completely involved in his entire testimony, taking notes, leaning forward. Everybody was wide awake the entire time. We've seen with some other minors who've also, some of them have also given emotional testimony, but sometimes their eyes are wandering around the courtroom, they're not paying attention, not with Goose. Everybody was in it the entire time. We have some audio, actually, from Scott Halstead. He was a fire boss at Upper Big Branch, and we only have this interview because he's already completed his testimony. Here's what he had to say outside the courthouse. Do you do you blame Mr. Blankenship? I mean, do you, well, overall, what do you think? What do you, what do you, the, think? you know, there was, there was days that I was there that there was phone calls come in, and, I mean, it was like, clockwork ever two to three hours there had to be a report sent out as to the production and downtime and he knew he knew every part of what was going on you think he put production before safety i do so mike what's your reaction to what scott halstead has to say about his conditions and how did the uh, jury react to him 
Yeah, Scott. Scott Halstead wasn't as emotional as Goose Stewart was in front of the jury, but he he was an extremely credible miner who testified about specific illegal activity uh, at the mine. And in particular, there were two things. One, he talked about how he methodically recorded in his belt exam books, which are weekly examinations of, of the belt lines at the Upper Big Branch Mine, that there needed to be things done that went directly to safety. They went directly to rock dusting the coal mine so that it would not be as explosive. And he would re- methodically record in these books that's, that this needed to be done at each of the entries. And then the government would show him the next page, and it would be clear that no corrective action was taken. Uh, he also talked about uh, that he, he had black lung. He's what's called a Part 90 miner, who's a miner with black lung who can be assigned to work in a lower dust environment. And because of that, he wears a dust pump that will monitor the dust. When he was wearing the dust pump, the safety director at UBB would accompany Scott Halstead and would do his job for him. And Scott Halstead would just stand in clean air in the intake and not do anything just because they wanted his dust reading to be manipulated. We're taking a short break from Blankenship on Trial to let you know that your support of West Virginia Public Broadcasting makes this podcast possible. So isn't it worth a call of support to 1-800-RADIO-87? Or you can go online and click the donate button at wvpublic.org. Your support helps us bring Blankenship on Trial and other podcasts to you and to everyone across the world. So please, pledge now. You're listening to Blankenship on Trial. I'm Scott Finn, speaking with Ashton Mara and Charleston attorney Mike Hissom. So, Mike, uh, before we move on to this next witness, uh, this is a small town. You work for Bailey and Glasser, and there's a little bit of sort of a conflict that we need to kind of disclose. What's going on with uh, Bailey and Glasser and today's key witness, Chris Blanchard? Yes, uh, Scott, my law firm, Bailey and Glasser, is one of the law firms that represents Mr. Blanchard. And when I left the U.S. Attorney's Office in 2012 and went into private practice at Bailey and Glasser, I was screened off from that matter. And uh, and I have had nothing to do with that, but but that is the relationship between the firm and Mr. Blanchard. All right. So we'll be focusing our questions to Ashton Mara about Chris Blanchard. So he is the leader of Performance Coal Company, the former leader, I should say. As president of that company, he oversaw upper big branch. What did Blanchard have to say on the stand, Ashton? So Blanchard is really key to the prosecution's case. He was granted immunity from prosecution by the U.S. Attorney's Office in order to testify. Blanchard is making the connection between all of the bad things we've heard about going on in the mines, the water accumulation, the poor ventilation, pushing production over safety. He's the one connecting those dots back to Don. Multiple miners have testified to having water collections within the mine, sometimes as high as their chest, sometimes they'd say topped out or all the way to the ceiling. Blanchard testified that there was a plan in place to create trenches to drain the water, but that plan was canceled because it was taking too long and it pushed off production from the long wall itself. Blanchard testified today that he was on a phone call with Don Blankenship himself, who said to put the miner back into the long wall and start producing again. He said that Blanchard was, quote, letting MSHA run his coal mines. MSHA, of course, is the Federal Mine Safety and Health Administration. Ashton, um, we've been talking a lot about advanced notice. It's this idea that 
people farther down in the mines were told in advance that MSHA inspectors would be showing up and they were scrambling to basically try to improve things before the inspectors got there. What did Blanchard have to say about that? Right. This is another instance where we're connecting the dots directly back to Don. We've heard from multiple miners, multiple dispatchers say they were directed to call underground, some of them even saying that Blanchard himself directed them to call underground. Blanchard said in his testimony today that he happened to call down to Don's office one time to tell him that he would have to miss a meeting because there were MSHA inspectors on site and somebody needed to escort them underground. Don had specifically asked him, do the crews underground know that those inspectors are there? Do they know that they're coming? And Blanchard, of course, said yes. These things that Blanchard said were going on could have been could have been fixed, according to him, with more men, more time, more money. And he says Blankenship told him no. Mike, what does that mean exactly for the conspiracy charges and for the fraud charges? What does this witness do to help the prosecution make that case? Yeah, well, the conspiracy charges, Scott, are, are ex- incredibly broad. Uh, it's one of the broadest tools that a federal prosecutor has. And it, the jury will be instructed by Judge Berger at the end of uh, the presentation of evidence that they only need to find one overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. So one thing that someone did uh, in furtherance of the mutual agreement or understanding. And that thing does not have to have been done by Don Blankenship himself. Um, and so w- when you have a witness connecting something directly to Don Blankenship uh, and it's an understanding and agreement to violate the law, um, that's that's going to be powerful testimony if the jury credits it. So it sounds like that they're building a case, Mike, that Blankenship, of course, was telling Chris to tell um, the people in the mine about to, to, to be notified. I mean, they're trying to connect all these dots and make it a solid line. Yeah, and on the issue at advance notice, Scott, we can certainly expect the defense to continue to say, as they have throughout, that advance notice was commonplace in the industry. But remember, it gets lost in all the talk about violations and citations and um, the mine safety and health standards, that there's another piece of count one, the conspiracy charge in count one, and that's a conspiracy to defraud MSHA. And the jury will be instructed that that's separate from a conspiracy to violate mine safety and health standards. That's a conspiracy that the object of it is to uh, cover up or trick or deceive MSHA. The jury could convict on count one on the basis of advance notice alone. They could conclude that the, that the advance notice to the working section, which we heard today, uh, allowed for an hour's period of time, if not longer, between the entry at the guard shack and the arrival at the working face. If there was some cover-up underfoot that, that allowed the, the people at the coal mine to deceive MSHA as to what was actually going on on the ground, that could be enough to convict on count one if it's tied to Don Blankenship. And if they believe Chris Blanchard. Right now they have this one tie between all of this mess and directly back to Don Blankenship all the way up. Later on in the trial, Ashton, they're going to be bringing in someone else that they think is going to be able to help make that tie between the mine and Blankenship, right? Right. So the uh, 
The prosecution announced yesterday that they will likely wrap their case early next week. And of course, the only person that we haven't heard from yet, Bill Ross. Bill Ross was, of course, this former MSHA official who was hired by Massey as a ventilation specialist. And we've talked about the memo in before, this Ross memo, where he was discussing the poor relationship that he thought Massey had with MSHA, cheating on dust sampling, the poor conditions underground. It's likely that Ross will be able to back up Blanchard's connections between Don and the conspiracy going on. And the uh, tape from Don Blankenship talking about the Ross memo, Mm -hmm. which has come out, basically saying it's worse than the Charleston Gazette article. So what happens after the prosecution wraps up its case, Mike? Uh, What can we expect the defense to do? Well, that, that, Scott, is a total wild card right now. Um, Based on the opening statement, I think we can make an educated guess, and I believe that the defendant is likely to testify, that Don Blankenship is likely to testify. No one knows for sure. I think it's also fair to assume that there will be experts. Uh, We heard a lot in the opening statement about the number of violations at other longwall mines in central Appalachia. I think there's going to be a a data expert that will contradict the, the MSHA representative from Arlington, Virginia, that testified early in the government's case. The defense case could be anywhere uh, from a couple witnesses to something that goes on for as long as the government's case. It's just impossible to say at this point. Yes, Scott, and I think it's just worth noting, you know, Mike says that Don is likely to testify. I'm under the opinion that he will. He has to. If you just review the things that Don has done in the past year, he went on MSNBC and was attacked after he released that documentary. He defended himself. He defended his stance. That documentary itself is proof, I think, that he's going to want to get his stance and his opinion out there. And honestly, I just don't believe that he's going to leave it up to other people to say it as clearly as he thinks that he can. And if you want to present the theme of Don Blankenship under siege, how better to do it than to take the stand and be, you know, low, slow-talking Don Blankenship and have Steve Ruby or Booth Goodwin come after you in front of that jury. Mm. So I think I think that Ashton's right. I, th- I think that's the natural assumption and, 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 a, and a well-educated guess. And we were talking about this before the uh, show started. There's a debate in the community of lawyers about whether defendants should take the stand. It's not clear-cut. Yeah, I, I think, Scott, you could put 10 white-collar criminal defense lawyers in a room, and five of them would tell you that if the defendant testifies, he's in trouble, and the other five would say that if the defendant doesn't testify, uh, he's in trouble. I'm of the view that the defendant ought to testify. It gets the jury's attention, but we'll see if that happens. Yeah, but I think the jury is also a consideration. We don't know a lot about this jury, but we do know that there are a couple of people who have said, I don't know anything about UBB. I don't know who Don Blankenship is. And so... Is, does that lean in his favor that this person doesn't know anything about me and maybe I can convince them that what the government is saying about me isn't true? I mean, I guess we'll see. From what little I know about Don Blankenship, I'm sure in his mind he thinks that he can convince them himself and he wants to do that. We'll see if he's effective. Charleston attorney Mike Hism and reporter Ash Demar from West Virginia Public Broadcasting, thanks for joining us yet again. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Scott. You've been listening to Blankenship on Trial. I'm Scott Finn. Blankenship on Trial is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. See illustrations from the trial, daily updates, and more on our website, wvpublic.org. And make sure you follow us on Twitter for the latest, at Ashton Mara and at WVPublicNews. Thanks for listening.